Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 24th of May 2019. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about queer media. You may have noticed that the uh, the date stamp on this episode is exactly the same as the date stamp on the previous episode, and there is a good reason for that. So we recorded two episodes on the same day today. Uh, that is because we're just... Uh, we have uh, some timetabling and scheduling stuff that we uh, are dealing with. Uh, and in particular, we had two ideas this week, so we decided to do them both on the same day. Uh, and we'll be doing the same likely in our next recording as well. Uh, that is because I am going overseas for five weeks uh, in uh, late June and early July. Uh, and so we're going to have to do some recording together so that uh, we can make sure that we're keeping our episodes being released every second week like we really wanted to continue doing. We talked really early on in the podcast about whether we would date stamp each episode with the day that we record or the day that it gets released. But I think given the fact that we talk about current events and politics quite a bit, it makes more sense to date stamp it on the day that we record so that if anything happens later, you know the time that our opinions are coming from. But also, you know, we're not going to be talking about events. We don't, you know, we never talk about events in such a specific way that, uh, you know, that the, the, the ideas and the topics that we're going to be discussing uh, should, should be timeless. <laughs> yeah, let's go for that. In May this year, Australia's longest-running LGBTIQ newspaper, The Star Observer, went into voluntary administration. Owners announced that the magazine is now up for sale with the hope that a new buyer will be able to save it from going under. Ben worked at The Star Observer for five years. Is that correct, Ben? Five? Uh, Yeah. While I spent a year writing for the magazine as a regular columnist. Uh, So this news has therefore hit us both pretty hard, uh, but also got us thinking about the future of LGBTIQ media. It's actually how we know each other. We were uh, in between a couple of stints I was doing there as a journalist. I was also a columnist there, strangely, and and Simon, you and I were columnists at the same time. Yes, and I think we, we started emailing each other about that. We did, yeah. LGBTI media has historically played an important role in providing a perspective that is not given in mainstream press. Yet, at the same time, like the Star Observer, some of these publications are struggling. This has left us asking the question, do we still need a queer-specific media? And if so, how do we ensure it continues to thrive? 
Ben, let's get right into it. You, as we said, you worked with the Star Observer for five years. What value do you think the magazine provides? This is a, a tricky question in some ways because I think like a lot of niche media or uh, what we might consider progressive media or left-wing media or critical media that is trying and struggling and often failing to survive in a very competitive media landscape that no one's really figured out how to do well in yet. There is maybe a distinction between the value I think publications like the Star Observer and queer media generally could theoretically be providing to the community and to, I don't know, to queer people and and the broader society more generally And what they provide in practice, there's maybe kind of a a gap there. I think you hear a lot of critiques and and I, you know, and they're often kind of mean spirited. So I I don't like that. And people have have lost their jobs here, which I think is important to remember as well. and, And that sucks. But there are certainly valid critiques to be made about gay community press that it focuses very specifically on the interests of relatively wealthy white gay men living in particular parts of Sydney and Melbourne. I think that in the case of the Star Observer, the editor, Matt Wade, or the former editor now, uh, who has been there for a few years, I, I, I just, I don't think that's true. I don't think those are valid critiques of the current status of the Star Observer. I think that, I think that they've tried very hard to, to be more diverse and, and, and broader than that specific demographic, although I think it has been true for a lot of the publications lifetime. So I think that that has been fair at times. I also get frustrated sometimes and not just not just after I left but while I was there, you know, we just often didn't have the time and the money to spend a lot of time on actual journalism. You do find yourself as and this this isn't just true of the Star Observer, this is true of of the age of 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 pretty much every newspaper that exists. Totally that you're having to file multiple stories a day you can't really leave your desk. You often don't even have time to call people. You're just having to kind of repurpose stuff you find elsewhere or source quotes on social media. And obviously, that's not ideal. It's a really frustrating reality of of the media landscape now. And I, I think that solving media is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. But with all of those caveats out of the way, I think that where queer press can be really fantastic, ultimately, is that it provides a can provide a perspective perspective that mainstream media is just not interested in and that when mainstream media does cover queer issues as has increasingly been happening they're often covered from the perspective of a mainstream audience that this is not a i mean i don't know mainstream's a weird word to use but from a non-queer audience's perspective so this is queer issues repackaged for non-queer audiences and i think that's really what we lose when we lose queer press. And I think that that is probably critiques that I, I've had of queer press at, the t- at, at times is that sometimes you can read queer press and it looks like a version of a story that was written for a mainstream audience, but in a queer magazine instead of a, you know, it doesn't, it loses, it, it, at times you can see it losing that perspective. Totally, well. totally, which sucks. Uh, and, and I think that that is uh, a problem. And, you know, and that, that was an experience that I had at, at the Star Observer, in which uh, when I was there, sort of the editor Drew left, uh, sort of towards the end. I wasn't there; I was a regular columnist. But he he left towards the end of that, and then there was a new uh, commentary editor, and a lot of the sort of 
interesting, more 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 niche queer topics that I wanted to cover or to write about. He just had no interest in. It was only more interested in sort of the more mainstream stuff, the stuff that would get clicks, basically, uh, the stuff that would you know sort of cause you know you know that we would consider sort of to reach a broader audience. And I think that sometimes queer press can lose some of the actual. Uh, the nicheness of it in many ways in that it it can uh, want to appeal to a mainstream audience. And I think that's where it can lose its edge at particular points of time. Uh, And I think that that can be disappointing. I I haven't paid as much attention to the Star Observer in the last few years uh, as I suspect you have, but I I do see what you're saying in terms of the, the desire and the push to sort of broaden the audience within the queer community. And I think that's really, really good. It's it's a shame that to see it, it really is a shame to see it struggling at this point of time. You know, I think that the queer press can play a really important role, but I, I wonder how we can, you know, is the question here, and maybe this is a question I'll put back onto you, is the question a challenge for a niche press or is it a question really related to broader issues that the media is facing in general? And And can we, you know, can a niche press really survive given all of the upheaval that's happening in media at this, at this current moment? Two things to say to that. I think, ironically, the nature of the media landscape at the moment is such that the more niche you are, the more likely you are to survive in lots of ways. That's kind of the future of, of media is having really, really specific audiences who are willing to pay for your content that can't get that anywhere else because there is so much stuff out there. Uh, and, and you know, the sad, frustrating thing about the death of so many media outlets is that content is has never been more alive and well. It's just mostly being done for free or, or people are being really underpaid or having to pump out a lot of crap. Yeah, we have a, lot, we have a, we have a quantity of content, but not a, necessarily a quality of content in many ways. It's sort of the, the we have lots of stuff out there, but the, the sort of version of journalism of someone can spend you know weeks on one story just doesn't really exist anymore it's not that it doesn't exist or it's it's for a very small number of people it it happens under really specific models like uh like publications like slate that will pump a lot of money into flagship kind of podcasts and then support that by also pushing out a lot of crap on their website for example i think there are models like that that have worked but I, I, I guess all of this goes to the fact that a lot of these are problems that are faced by the media landscape more generally. I think that what makes some of this stuff specific to queer media, and I think this is something that you'd probably be keen to get into as well, is the ways that queer issues are increasingly being kind of quote-unquote mainstreamed or increasingly being covered by other publications. And it's the nature of respectability politics, right, where these issues, a version of these issues that is palatable to a mainstream audience and a version of queer people, I would argue, that is palatable to a mainstream audience has been or is in the process of being adopted by or absorbed by mainstream discourse. And then everyone kind of goes, oh, great, you know, we don't need queer press now or queer is mainstream now, so we can just kind of all think about it in the whole bunch of other issues that we talk about but what gets lost in that is anything that doesn't fit the kind of respectable model of queer. So it's the same thing that we talk about around who gets left behind in the process of respectabilizing queer communities. And that it's, and that that is happening in the media and I'm in in queer press in particular and I think I mean maybe there's a there's a few different threads I'm I'm interested in here. 
but I'm wondering whether, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is about whether this is something that is happening to queer press. Has queer press changed or is it just that the stories that the queer press were telling 30 years ago are now stories that are mainstream? Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but has it has it become more respectable? Has Was there a previous queer press that was super much more radical than it is now? Or is it just that our perception of what is radical is different? Uh, and I think that's an interesting question in terms of, you know, what, what if, if who is being left behind? Were those people that are now being left behind ever actually part of the story in the first place when it came yeah, to queer totally. media? And I think that's a really good question. And, and the answer is probably no, that ironically, in the context of what I'm saying, queer media has played a massive role in the respectable in in respectability politics that that that's kind of where a lot of these forces have come from and a publication like the star observer has for the 40 years that it's been around has has really shaped community discussions in ways that i think have have contributed very much to the respectabilizing of the community and the the mainstreaming of of queer issues so in some ways maybe it's been its own uh, method of ex- it has contributed to its own execution in 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 sort some of has sense, be, you know, it's 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 given its it, through its success has has resulted in it no longer needing needing to be around. Almost. Yeah, in a in a roundabout way. So, I I think it's important. I think you're right. I think it's important to not romanticize a version of queer press that probably never really existed. And so maybe part of what I'm doing here is being hopeful about the potential of queer community press rather than what it actually is. And I think that that, you can see that trend really clearly in a lot of queer press. And, and, you know, whenever I go traveling, I always, you know, go, you know, end up going to a gay bar somewhere and and pick up the local magazine. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, But what's what I find fascinating, and it's, it's, it's always enjoyable to see the different the different approaches that different places take, uh, and I and I enjoy that. But I think that what I found what I find interesting is returning to Australia and looking at queer press. I don't pick up the copy of the Sydney Star of the Star Observer. It's just the Star Observer now. I don't pick up the copy of that because we don't really get it anywhere here in Canberra. But in Canberra, we have a magazine called Fuse, which is a um, an LGBTIQ magazine. Oh, and it was I used to write for that. Years ago, even, this is like I don't think I've ever even heard of it. Yeah, this is like ten years ago it, it established, and I used to write for it. Then I started writing for it as its political contributor. Um, but you look at the magazine, and it's and I think this is true for a lot of queer press, and it is more than anything, it is a collection of ads and a, the, with a few stories in between that sort of very queer focused uh, t- at specific ad targeting that happens, um, you know, the advertising, you know, and, and you look at a lot of queer press around the world and this is kind of what it has become, a, you know, a big but collection of ads of clubs yeah, and bars and things like that. I mean, that. that's that's interesting though. I mean, let's talk about ads for a sec because I think that the way that ads operate in community press specifically, and I'm not talking just about queer community press, but like community newspapers. So whether that's kind of really localized newspapers mm. or, or uh, I don't know, lots of uh, ethnic communities, for example, have have community-specific newspapers. I would argue that the the way that ads are used in those newspapers were in the past part of the process by which community newspapers formulated the kind of institution, the institutions upon which community maybe rests, right? That like these become a sort of proxy physical space that are about commerce, you know, that are about these kind of often just like little 
neighborhood gay businesses being propped up. Yep. It's yep. they become a forum for uh, people discussing issues that they might not otherwise have. That that they are this, and you know, and queer press is often, um, you know, one of the things I do. The reason I pick it up in in in, in cities is that they they normally have the ads for the events that are happening. Totally, um, same, you know, same and that is things. really, yeah, you know, in, you go to big cities, and at the end they'll have a list of all the different things that are happening in the city. Totally, that's yeah. what I used to read the Star Observer for uh, before I started writing for them. So they have all those sorts of things. They used to like classifieds mm. used to be a big part of uh, yep, yep. community newspapers, and again, not just queer community newspapers, but others and things like. Uh, missed connections type things like personal ads, all that stuff was a really big part of it and I think was very instrumental in forming community. And again, not just queer communities, but uh, others as well. I think why ads in particular are an interesting way to think about it is that while these publications continue to have a lot of ads, they're now, you know, banks or cars or like other things that are doing queer targeted ads. And I feel like that's just a perfect distillation of the ways that the functions of these publications have changed and maybe why it's hard to imagine them surviving into the future. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is uh, what, yeah, where I was definitely heading. I, I don't think my critique is ever the existence of ads on, in press. I mean, as we discussed we ads now, on the podcast. <laughs> we, we now have ads on the podcast. You know, the, the reality is that, you know, you need ads to survive uh, and that, that, you know, because they're free publications, the model is is advertising that's how you make the money to to exist i think that what i find interesting is the types of ads that you see on there and the 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 you know you know you could just frame it as being a you know the, the sort of big corporations that are the you know the, that are the problem but it's kind of like a it's not actually the existence of the big corporate ads it's the the sort of lack of the local community ads that are, that is sort of interesting to see that shift if you compare to you know and I, and i think i see that because I think there are places where that where that sort of press still exists to an extent. You know, I, you know, I think a perfect example of this is I really enjoy looking at queer press when I go to when I go to Berlin because it's it is very heavily community focused in many ways, uh, and you don't see as much as much of that dominance of of uh, ad space given to to you know to big banks or you know that certainly exists, but it's it's you know there are multiple different versions of different magazines that it's such a big queer city. That there's so much space for all of this sort of community advertising to occur, uh, and and you don't see that as much in Australia. And maybe that's just about the 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 nature of what has happened uh, to queer communities in Australia. It's maybe it's about the nature of you know where they can get money from, um, you know where where they can realistically get people to advertise in. For sure, I mean um, these like little gay businesses can't afford to pay the same amount that that big businesses can. Is the reality. But also a, a place like the Star Observer has become in in the process of becoming more mainstream. I think it's probably become more expensive, uh, and that it's I, I don't know exactly. I, you know, but I think that a lot of these magazines that are now uh, more mainstream, it sort of creates a, a demand for a more mainstream advertising re- revenue. Uh, it's you know it's it's running less off a the of a, of a um, you know the smell of an oily rag, which is potentially a very good thing when you can actually pay your journalists. Um, but that requires uh, advertising from businesses that are bigger and that can afford more. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm certain that that's not true. In that, like, I know that they're running. Well, I mean, they're, they're obviously uh, they're not doing well, yeah. administration now. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's more that small businesses are less willing to advertise because, like, they, they, it's certainly okay. not more yep. expensive, and journalists are being paid less. If anything, you know, it's it's operating on 
on much more of a shoestring than it ever would have you, in the past. Okay, you mean then in previous times. Okay, then, then I'll take Ab- that back. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's more that in the past they could rely on small bits of revenue from a whole range of different places and now it's more like people just aren't willing to advertise in press anymore and so each account has to be bigger, if that okay, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense, yep. Yeah, but I think like also like really what a lot of looking at queer press is about is just fucking like the neoliberal dissolution of community. Like it's really just kind of representative of that in that a lot of these businesses aren't advertising because a lot of these businesses don't exist anymore. You know, there aren't like little, I don't know, gay ghetto is a term a lot of people don't like, but the the those little kind of gablehoods where you had a concentration of all of these sorts of things and, and you know, that was a place where people would go to be, go and support businesses potentially that are advertised in the Star Observer and you can go to this area and pick the Star Observer up and read about news about that area and it becomes just about kind of creating this community in a very direct sense. Like that just isn't there. I mean, things like the internet have really distributed, I I guess. Destroy the classified, for example. Yes, exactly. Uh, But I think it's also decentralized everything and, and meant that you can get a lot of this information anywhere. So... You know, you don't need to rely on a community institution for a lot of this information. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, and to going back to the sort of the story of going into a different city and picking out the magazine, finding the magazine to find out what's going on, you don't need to do that anymore. You can do that via the internet. You can do a quick search and find out what's going on. But also I think that it's not just the internet there, you know, we are seeing, you know, for example, the closure of gay bars and the and gay venues all around the world at the moment. And of course that's going to impact a, a, a queer press because that this is the space where they, where they, where they thrive. It's the space where they're, where they're, you know, it's, it's where you pick up the magazine in the first place. So if there's, if there's fewer venues for them to even distribute it, uh, that causes problems, but there's also this less of of a community of people to engage in that press in the first place. So it becomes less useful, you know, not, not actually less useful, but it becomes perceived to be less useful in that, in that way. Totally. And I think as we talk about pretty frequently on this podcast, the process of uh, I keep saying the word respectabilizing, which I feel like is not a real word, but the process of respectability politics has also meant that I think lots of queers are uncomfortable with being identified explicitly within queer spaces. And so, you know, people might say, it's not even like, why do I need to read the Star Observer when I could get stories about queer stuff elsewhere? It's like, why do I only need to read about queer stuff? Mm. And and I think that... What that, value does that even bring me? 
Exactly, totally, because because sexuality is increasingly seen as something that we can parcel off as this little uh, separate part of ourselves that doesn't necessarily, uh, that doesn't define us and doesn't say anything about who I am. Or we can just read about it in The Guardian when we want to. We can have, like, you know, that can be one part of the story that we read in The Guardian, because The Guardian, you know, this is just one example, The Guardian, you know, does publish stuff on sexuality here and there. It gives us stories on same-sex, same-sex marriage and stuff like that. You know, that part of my sexuality I can just read in the mainstream press now. Why do I need something that is uh, specific uh, or that is niche in this way? Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about The Guardian. Let's talk about how queer stuff is covered in mainstream publications and, and think about, like, if we look at that coverage, what are we getting and what are we not getting? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I have I am someone who has written about sex and sexuality for The Guardian, um, and I think that it is certainly, you know, you when you, as a, as a writer, I think that, uh, when I'm thinking about a place like The Guardian or, uh, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever, you're, you're, you're picking particular pitches to what, to, to, to those audiences. Yeah. Um, you know, the kind of stuff that we talk about on here is not something I'd be necessarily going to probably, probably not going to pitch to The Guardian, you know. Uh, is and there think- a place that you think you could pitch stuff that we talk about on here? Because I feel like there's not for a lot of it. Mm, no, I don't think so either. I mean, we've written once one piece for the Overland, um, which I think, you know, would be the place that would be most likely to accept some of the stuff. But, but I even that piece is. we wrote for Overland, like it was pretty kind of high theory. Mm, uh, I feel like yeah. that's kind of what got it across the line. Yeah, and I don't think that it would accept a lot of the dis- the discussions that we have because it's you know it's again it's not a it's not a queer press it's a it's a mainstream sort of progressive not mainstream it's a progressive press so it accepts particular things in particular in particular ways yeah um but yeah no thinking about some of this stuff we discuss here absolutely not i can't think of many of any or many places that would accept that and i think that that i think is the problem is a problem not the problem but it is a problem in many ways and i think that that's not just true for uh, mainstream press. That's true for queer press as well. Like, you know, there yeah, are yeah. queer-specific spaces. You know, I don't think the Star Observer would pick up a lot of the stuff we want to talk about. Or I don't or, know. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I feel like the uh, the one advantage of the the Star Observer and other queer press being fairly desperate for content in recent years is that we probably could have <laughs> probably we probably could have given them a lot of this stuff. Um, but I, you know, but I think that I, my general point is that I think that, you know, I mean, we're pretty niche in many ways, but I think that there, when we, we have an audience, we have a growing audience. So there is something, something that people are enjoying, hopefully, you know, and I'm not saying this to toot our own horn. I'm saying this because I think that there is, what's interesting about this stuff is that there is a drive for this sort of content, this sort of critical content and and you see it in multiple places, but it's often driven by individuals who are creating their own stuff rather than a mainstream, a, a form of press that you can really get, you know, that you can pitch to and that you can sell to and that, ha- that can package it up with other things. And I think that that is interesting and challenging in and of itself because, you know, as we've spoken about on the podcast a couple of times, you know, it's hard to do this stuff. It's really hard to, you know, it takes resources. It takes a lot of our time. It takes a lot of our thinking energy, you know, and while we're sitting here discussing this, 
you know, you're not working on your master's, master's and I'm not working on my PhD. And, I'm, and that's fine. You know, I'm enjoying all of that process, but I think that not everyone can, in, can do that. Um, and so, and, and there's two questions that come out of that is, first of all, has there ever been a space for the kind of stuff that we do um, or the kind of stuff that other people do that is more critical in this approach? You know, has it, you know, and this goes back to the question of has queer press actually changed or is it just that it's be, sort of the rest of the world has caught up to it in many ways? Well, I, I, I want to go back and ask, I've, I'm sorry, I asked you a question before and then I derailed your answer to That's it. Fine. So to go back to that question, which I think will be quite illustrative, if we take The Guardian and we take The Star Observer and we look at queer content in The Guardian, and we look at the best stuff that we've liked in The Star Observer in the last, I don't know, say the existence of the publication, the last 40 years, what do we not get in The Guardian? Like, what is actually lost? Because I think that there are lots of things you can, there are lots of concrete things you can point to. You don't, I think what you lose Mm, are things like, I think what you lose are things like, stories about specific initiatives within queer communities that might not get any interest in gay press. I think you lose stories about violence in the community, about specific instances of people being beat up or being assaulted or whatever. I think you lose stories about, for example, queer issues that might come up at local councils that mm-hmm. there would be no interest in in mainstream press, but a lot of community journalists were covering. So, like, what are councils doing about violence in their area or, you know, like around the, um, uh, like the beat murders and things like that. And I think you also get stories about about queer, queer history. And this is something that I've enjoyed doing for the Star Observer. And also when I wrote for SBS Sexuality, I enjoyed writing stories about queer history that I thought were really... Uh, valuable and and sort of the lessons we can learn about them that uh, I thought were valuable and that would never get picked up in a lot of that sort of more mainstream press. Totally, and is well, and it's just not. And even whether or not they would be picked up in theory, the reality is that no one's doing them. Yeah, you know, like yeah, exactly. They're, they're not yeah. being they're not being written and they're not being published. So I think that there are those sorts of things. I feel like there was another example that that's just slipped out of my mind. But but no, I think you're 100 percent correct in all of those things that. There are sort of a, you know, I see it as like a, when you have people, journalists on the ground within the community, uh, you know, in inverted commas community, depending on what you, how you define that, I think that you get a broader spread of what that means, but you also can get a more localized spread of what that means. So the stuff that happens in the local council, you know, that, of course, the Guardian's not going to pick up that they're a national newspaper. They're focusing on what's happening in Parliament House. You know, totally. You know, like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about stuff that I, you know, again, not to kind of toot my own horn, but, you know, stuff that I wrote that I really liked that I think would never exist anywhere else. Like, I wrote a, a, a news piece for the Star Observer. I remember, I remember not long before I left it about the LGBTI health, I think it was the health and wellbeing or law and order, one of the working groups in, in the Victorian government and interviewed people from that working group about how a couple of them felt like it had got nothing done and it was a total waste of time and money and and the community was being a bit screwed by it and some people who really disagreed with that. And I'm just like that sort of inter-community disagreements about how how our time and money is spent, you know, that's way too specific and way too granular, Mm -hmm. but I think is really important. I think the other kinds of things that I used to get to write a lot that I really loved is the more like in-depth, almost like anthropological 
speeches about really specific queer events because I could go along to these spaces and had access to these spaces and could write about them. We caught up for a drink just before or while you were at a uh, a bear event in Sydney that you yeah, were yeah, reporting, yeah. reporting on and you were going and interviewing people about that. I mean, funnily enough, I wrote that for SBS, but oh, that's uh, yeah. but it was commissioned by Drew Sheldrick, who was the editor of the Star Observer, yes. which I think is is not a, a coincidence. Yes, and, and another example I was thinking about is I once wrote a piece on the Darlington Statement, which was a a, a group of uh, intersex activists came together and mm. wrote a, a broad-reaching statement about their demands around intersex rights, and that was something. You know, I wrote that for SBS as well, and I, I'm not sure if Drew was there at the if it, that was just after he'd left. I think it was after he'd left, but uh, again, that was something that would not that was not picked up by mainstream press, and it was important. It was a very important statement. It was a very important coming together of people, uh, and that that kind of stuff was not would not be picked up by mainstream press in many ways, and did not get picked up. But it's important that someone is writing about that stuff. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm I was a bit worried that we were we were being overly pessimistic in the first half of this conversation, but I think it's important to reflect on on what we what we lose here, and I I, I feel like we've done some of that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are critiques that certainly can be made, but I think there's also, like, really important value that this press brings. And we, you know, I think you tweeted at some point in time after the, you know, the announcement about Star Observer that, you know, that if we if we value this stuff, what we have to do is consume it. Uh, and that maybe is, you know, that we have to get out there and participate in it. And maybe that can be a sort of positive ending point of, like, you know, well, there are values to this. We need to be engaging in it and we need to be doing something with it and participating in it. Otherwise, it will go under. Totally. If you care about queer press, donate money, donate time. Yeah, that's how Read these it. things survive. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider becoming a subscriber on our Patreon. We have a lot of new content on the Patreon that is uh, for subscribers only. Uh, and it is also just a great way to support us and help us keep this podcast going. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash queers podcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment, there are various ways you can do so. You can email us, queerspodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at queerspodcast. We also have personal social media. I am on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon's on Twitter at Simon Copland, and he is also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can find the podcast on our website, uh, queerspodcast.com, and you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. I'm on Samsung, so I don't use any of those devices. Uh, what, do you, what do you use? I use a thing called Podbean. Podbean. That's where I get my podcasts. Subscribe it, on Podbean. Yeah, there is like when I was when I got my Apple when I got my uh, Samsung, I was like, oh, what are the different podcast apps that you can find? And there was this was the one that had all the podcasts I like to listen to. Hmm. Um, if you go to any of these podcast apps, please leave a review and rating, as it is the best way for other people to find us. A big shout out to our podcast network, Lip Media. They are fantastic and produce a bunch, a, a growing bunch of queer Australian podcasts. So go and check out their stuff. Also, if you like what we're doing and know someone you think might also like what we're doing, tell a friend. Uh, Grab their phone off them, steal it, hack it, get in, subscribe, get out. Suddenly they'll be listening to what we're doing. They won't even know what's happened, but they'll be loving it and they'll do the same to other people, I imagine. Oh, I hope so. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thank you. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I'm at the nail salon. What? I'm at the grocery store. What? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 